0: Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacey Washington.
1: Many countries owe us a tremendous amount of money from many years back where they're delinquent, as far as I'm concerned, because the United States has had to pay for them. So if you go back 10 or 20 years, you'll just add it all up. It's massive amounts of money is owed. Uh, the United States has paid and stepped up like... Nobody. This has gone on for decades, by the way. This has gone on for many presidents, but no other president brought it up like I bring it up. The good news is that the uh,
2: allies have started to invest more in uh, defense. Uh, after years of cutting defense budgets, they have started to uh, add billions to their defense budgets and. Uh, Last year was the biggest increase uh, in defense spending across Europe and Canada in a generation. Why was that last year? It's also because of your leadership, because of your clear message. and They were there,
3: Wow. Welcome to Stacey on the Ride here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Guess what? President Trump went there. He went there in front of the cameras. He went there in front of the media. He let them know in no uh, not easy terms, that he's not he's not here to be paying for everything at NATO. He's not interested in being the only funder or the major funder of NATO. And you might be thinking, well, how bad could it be? Well, NATO member military spending, I have those numbers for you. I have Julian Nista, reporter from The Daily Caller, and Justin Walker, who was a clerk for an entire year for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Judge Kavanaugh, in, in essence, help train him and prepare him to go into the legal field. And it's uh, quite, a, quite an achievement to get to clerk for someone who eventually goes on to be a nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States. So we're going to talk to him in hour two. We're, what we're going to do first, though, is we're going to get into this moment where, of course, the left is saying the president's unhinged, that he unleashed this or that. I mean, the language has been comical. And we're going we're gonna to listen to what the president said, and we're going to put it into context. And then we're going to talk about some other things today. Clearly, we have to get into what I see as uh, media malpractice and the continued vilification of the president without cause. He has not been convicted of anything as of yet. And so the characterization of the president of the United States as someone who is working and in league with the Russians, it's unfair. And if he's truly innocent until proven guilty, all of these characterizations have to stop until charges are brought and then there's a conviction and impeachment anything that would provide quantifiable evidence of the claims that are being made. And then, of course, we're going to delve into uh, the bipartisan support for the past few SCOTUS nominees and how different things are now. The border asylum turning to the border. uh, Border asylum claims are up 800 percent, while the violence in the countries that are sending these asylum uh, applicants has gone down significantly. So what does that mean? We'll get into that. And of course, we're going to talk about Lisa Page. This is a story that should be top of news, but isn't because everyone has to call the president a Russian agent. Uh, there's this crazy thing. Um, Congress subpoenaed her. And I know if you or I got a, a congressional subpoena, we would, you know, put that on our calendars and make sure to show up for that. She just sent a note over from her attorney and said, yeah, I don't feel like I'm adequately prepared to answer the questions because you haven't given me what I demanded. So I'm not going to come. You think that would fly for you or I? thinking no. So uh, we're going to talk about that. So first off, let's get back to the president is in uh, Belgium and he's there for this summit. He took Melania, the wives of all of the wives and spouses of all of the the world leaders are there and they're all uh, participating in these meetings as well as photo ops and breakfasts and uh, opportunities to tour certain sites there. And if you've ever been to Belgium, I have. It's a gorgeous country. It's beautiful And there are a lot of tourist-type attractions that the world leaders can kind of engage in in their downtime to make the trip, you know, a little more bearable since they got to talk business. And business is what the president is there to discuss. He's actually treating this the way you or I would on our family budget. Let's say in our family budget we had someone that we dealt with on a regular basis, maybe a lawn care contractor, or maybe let's instead of saying our family budget, let's let's treat this as one of those things that's um, more like a neighborhood association. So you live in a subdivision and your neighborhood association has all of these people, uh, families in it, and all of you share the costs for road maintenance and snow removal and landscaping on the monument at the beginning of your subdivision. And maybe you have a subdivision pool. And so that maintenance is included. And all of the houses are supposed to take the total bills, divide it by the number of houses that are in the neighborhood. And everyone pays their fair share to keep up all of these community assets. And so it becomes apparent to you that one of the houses that is quite a bit larger, it's been added onto a lot, it has its own pool, uh, it has a lot more landscaping and exterior lighting. In other words, it's a bit outsized for the neighborhood, but it's still within the neighborhood. It still has uh, the same rights and privileges as any other house in the neighborhood, and it's a part of the Neighborhood Association. So that house has been bearing an outsized brunt of the cost. So even though all of the houses in the neighborhood have the same stake in the Neighborhood Association, one house is paying a lot more, uh, contributing a lot more to, let's say, the road upkeep. The entire subdivision had the road that goes through the entire subdivision repaved. The cost for that was $28,000. The big house is paying, uh, you know, 10000 12000 of that. And then all of the other houses, say 20 other houses, are paying the remainder. So you divide, you take 10 off the top, the big house pays 10, everybody else pays, divides the remainder up amongst themselves. How long do you think it would be before the people who live in the big house would say, ah, nah, I don't like this deal. The subdivision covenant says we divide the costs by the number of homes in the neighborhood, 21, we should be paying an equal amount, an equal share for, let's say, the upkeep of the road or whatever the costs are, total for the year. That's what's happening at NATO. Only... In addition to being a part of the Neighborhood Association, we also provide the manpower bodies, boots on the ground, technology, and physical assets to make war, if need be. But to maintain the peace, which is what we've been doing since World War II, we're doing that for all the other people in the neighborhood. So all the other European nations have some kind of American military presence that they appreciate and love greatly. They don't pay for it. And they don't contribute their fair share to NATO. So not only are we protecting the neighborhood, but we're paying for all of the subdivision upkeep and maintenance for the neighborhood. We're paying more than our fair share. That's what President Trump is talking about. How long do you think he's going to allow that to go on? Other presidents have seen this information. Well, we're America and we obviously can afford to pay more. Our GDP is larger, yada, yada, yada. It's not about how much money we make or how many times we've upgraded our section of the subdivision, our piece of land. It's not about how many cars we have parked out front or how often we go out of town on vacation. What it's about is we're paying more than we're supposed to. How much more? Well, NATO member military spending for 2017 in billions of dollars, the United States spent $685.9 billion. The next country to spend even close to us, number two in spending, is the United Kingdom at $55.2 billion. So we're not just spending twice as much or three times as much. We're spending roughly eight times as much. Looks like France, 45.9 billion. Germany, 45.4 billion. Italy, 23.3 billion. Canada, 21.2 billion. The Czech Republic comes in with a paltry 2.2 billion. Now, we're supposed to be doing percentage-wise. The analogy that I made about the subdivision was for simplicity. But the fact is, we're actually, they they base the amount of money that we spend on how much of your GDP. So you take 4% or 2%, whatever. And that's fine. But they're not even doing their minimum. The minimum amount that they're supposed to spend, which is 2% of their GDP, they're not, they're not spending that. So the question is, how long do we put up with that? How long do we as a country say, yeah, that's okay? Donald Trump says th- that, that time has passed. Now that he's president, that's no longer going to be okay. So let's listen to him. He first is characterized as the left media as him unleashing a rant at delinquent NATO allies during a photo op breakfast. But I want to listen to him now taking this opportunity where all the cameras are rolling. Some of them were rolling live. A lot of them were rolling to tape, planning to use the entirety of the photo op in a news piece that would run later in the day. He realized that. He realized if he just took to the podium to talk about this, most news media outlets would black him out. So he used an opportunity where all of them were watching, all of them had the cameras rolling to get this done. He says there's a hypocrisy of Europe just signing contracts, giving 70% of their natural gas energy business to russia which coincidentally if you remember this from civics when you were a kid the reason nato exists is to protect european nations from russian aggression yet they're doing all of their business with russia instead of the united states but they expect the united states to protect them from russia nobody says it better than donald trump it's number three
1: i think uh, it's very sad So we're supposed to protect you against Russia, but they're paying billions of dollars to Russia. And I think that's very inappropriate. And the former chancellor of Germany is the head of the pipeline company that's supplying the gas. Uh, Ultimately, Germany will have almost 70 percent of their country controlled by Russia with natural gas. So you tell me, is that appropriate? I mean, I've been complaining about this from the time I got in. It should have never been allowed to have happened. But Germany is totally controlled by Russia. I think it's something that NATO has to look at. I think it's very inappropriate. You and I agree that it's inappropriate.
2: NATO is the alliance of 29 nations. And uh, there are sometimes differences and uh, different views and also some disagreements. And the gas uh, uh, pipeline from Russia to Germany is one issue where allies uh, disagree. But the strength of NATO is that despite these differences, we have always been able to unite around our core task to uh, to protect and defend each other because we understand that we are stronger together than apart. Uh, I think that two world wars and the Cold War thought was that uh, we are stronger together than apart.
3: So then you have the, he's got this like special name. He's the head of NATO and he's sitting directly across from President Trump and he begins to try to like, you know, diffuse the situation because Donald Trump did not look angry. It wasn't one of those situations where you're like, oh, he looks mad or oh, he's rude. It wasn't that at all. But it was the case that most of them were expecting him to say, good morning, it's so good to be with you, make some small talk, and then everyone smiles and takes pictures, you know, because you can hear the cameras snapping in, in the background. Instead, Donald Trump was like, yeah, this is a great time for me to expose one of my problems with this whole gathering. And I just, I can't stress it enough that, what we do often in politics is we sit back and we watch. We we watch what our leaders are saying in these political gatherings. And as long as they sound nice and they sound like they're being, you know, colloquial to each other and it sounds like everyone's slapping each other on the back and shaking hands and being friends, we assume everything's fine and we go on about our business. We go back to you know, setting out something for dinner tonight, making our meal plan for the week, shopping for groceries, taking kids to doctor's appointments, dealing with our budgets and our family issues, getting the gas in our, into our car, changing the oil. You know I could go on and on and on for hours and hours, 24 hours a day, the things that we as Americans, as people, as human beings, you have to take care of these things. You can't just let them fall to the side while you think about what the president said at NATO. But that's his job. And, and my point here, that I, I can't let you guys get away from this. We can't get away from the fact that if this were our own budget and we were getting raked over the coals financially by a group of people that we were supposed to be in partnership with that we're basically providing all of the protection for none of us would allow that to go on for years and years and years. None of us would most people who, if you live in the biggest house in the, in the neighborhood and you're getting raked over the coals, you put that house up for sale and move to a neighborhood that actually abides by their subdivision covenants or better yet move to a subdivision that doesn't have a subdivision agreement other than every bill that comes into this neighborhood gets divided by four. You write a check for it. No fees during the year. None of this subdivision maintenance garbage. Just did he did he mow, mow the grass in the subdivision front? He charged four hundred dollars for that. Four houses on the street. Hundred dollars each. Everybody writes a check. The guy gets paid. Done. No, no maintaining of thousands of dollars over the years. Oh, I want to build a monument. I don't arguing about that stuff, having fights. Just a simple division of what's owed. Boom, you're done. And that's what Donald Trump is doing. And so when you see him, first of all, this is nothing new. This is the same thing he's been saying for the past 30 years of his public life, where he was mostly talking about what was going on in New York City. But he would occasionally comment on the international geopolitical status of, of the country, America, and our dealings with everyone else, and how we continually make these deals that are horrible for us. And he's still doing that. Only now he's doing it from the chair of the commander-in-chief. And now they have to listen to him, and boy, were they squirming. They hated every minute of it. But wouldn't you hate it if somebody you'd been cheating called you on the carpet about it in public? In front of a hundred cameras? Yeah, you'd squirm too. So don't be that guy. Don't be the cheater. That's what he's saying to them. Cheating time is over. Time to pay your bills. I like it. I like it a lot. When we get back, we'll speak with Julia Nista. She's a reporter for the Daily Caller, right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
4: Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, I'm reading through the Old Testament now, and I'm coming to places that are named that I see on our Israel tour every March. It's really fascinating to think that Jericho existed way back in the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, and I can visit there today. The same can be said for Jerusalem. The Bible literally comes to life when you visit Israel, the Holy Land Now we're going in March My wife Allison and I, we lead these tours every March So if you would like to go with us You need to go to the website and check it out It's twholyland.com twholyland.com If you want a brochure sent to your mailbox Just call us at 800-FAMILIES Option 5 That's 800-F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S Option 5 And we'll send you a brochure
0: Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. I once asked the president of a very large, complex organization, how do you keep it all together? How do you stay on top of all of this? He looked at me and said, Crawford, the weight is too much for me to carry. That's why I have to give it all to him. He said, if I take my eyes off the Lord, I would be crushed by the load. It's sobering to remember that God doesn't give us merely difficult tasks. No, God gives us impossible assignments. Solomon was very much aware of that when he was installed as king. Can you imagine filling Papa David's shoes? Listen to Solomon's words in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7-9. through And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of thine? Solomon expressed several things in this prayer. First, he admitted, God, I'm inexperienced. I don't know what I'm doing. Then there was a general acknowledgement of the enormity of the responsibility. This is a great people with a great heritage, and I'm out of my element. And finally, and this really was the essence of his cry to God, God, I need wisdom. Will you give me what I need? Well, here's what I want you to remember today. God loves it when we're completely dependent on Him. What makes us competent to lead is the realization
5: that we desperately need God. Crawford Loritz is Senior Pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, go to livingthelegacy.org. Welcome back
0: to
3: Spacey on the Right. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for uh, tuning into the show and for following us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Also, head over to American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk pages on Facebook and hit the like button. And then once you've done that, hit notifications. Once you have the little drop-down tab up here, you can select see first, and that way you don't miss anything from us. If not that, select uh, get notifications, which means that we'll be in your news feed, and you'll get our stories and all of that over at AFR and Urban Talk. So we want want you to do that. We want to have you uh, supporting us in that way. Listen to my dog cutting up in the foyer there. He's supposed to be upstairs, so hopefully he'll get a little ride up the stairs there. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Julia Nista, reporter for The Daily Caller and good friend of the show. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so let's, uh, first off, I wanted to get your take, before we launch into your piece that you have over at The Daily Caller, I wanted to get your reaction on um, the president using the photo op, which was a captive media moment, to excoriate other NATO leaders for not Doing business with the United States as their primary protector under NATO, and also they're not paying their fair share.
6: Yeah, I think it shows, um, it really shows that, that what he means uh, when it comes down to doing business with these foreign countries. And certainly he's been holding Germany um, accountable for their, their small contribution to NATO uh, payments. And there was a whole breakdown of the payments. Uh, that each country in NATO, in, in the NATO allied forces, uh, of what their breakdown of payments were, and it showed specifically those countries with the larger GDPs, and also, um, but just uh, all of the European uh, countries in general, it showed that they were well below the their percentage of payments that they were supposed to pay, and so, and the U.S. was uh, paying at its at its. Um, at its line, actually a little bit above it. So, I mean, it shows really that uh, the president is, he means business when he's talking with these people about their payment. Yeah,
3: and Julia, thank you for pointing out the, the actual, like, there is a marker. So, first segment, just before you came on, I went over just a few of the countries, their member military spending in 2017 and billions of dollars. But I gave the rough numbers. So what we're spending, like the United States, $685 billion, the U.K., $55.2 and, and the difference, the market difference between the United States and the U.K. But you're referring to um, what they're supposed to pay based, and then what they're actually submitting, correct? I mean, there's, there's yes. a, a number of ways of looking at it.
6: Yes. Mm-hmm. I
3: think it's good for uh- him to do that.
6: Uh, yeah, no, no. So, just to, I guess maybe just to elaborate, uh, elaborate on that a little bit more. I think um, the U.S. is supposed to pay uh, maybe two percent of. I can't. I can't exactly remember the exact amount, but I know that it's just divided equally based off of GDP, based off of which um, which countries are able to pr- to um, pr- to pay a certain amount. But they're all, you know, part of this giant allied forces. Well, I mean, if we're going to be paying, if we're going to be overcompensating for the rest of these countries, why exactly? Um, Why wouldn't we get maybe more benefits equal to the amount of the money that we're paying? Or Mm -hmm. why are we overcompensating for their military protection? I mean, it really doesn't make any sense for us to be hearing that. So I think that's just a reason. And and something that Trump was, you know, during this photo op, when he was talking to all these leaders and really, really getting into it with them. I mean, uh, that's really what he was focusing on when that happened.
3: I loved it. I, th- I think it was mm-hmm. the perfect time to do it because if he'd said mm-hmm. today at three o'clock, Julia, we're going to have, you know, a a, a a press gaggle or a press briefing and I'm going to talk about how we're being cheated by our other NATO member nations, there, there mm-hmm. definitely reporters would have shown up, cameras would have been there, but a lot of the major news media outlets would have blacked it out. They just simply wouldn't cover it because they don't like him talking about this stuff. Whereas mm-hmm. this was a photo op, everyone was covering that. And so... He got the the message out to a much wider audience. I thought it was kind of brilliant.
6: Mm-hmm. Agreed.
3: So let's move over to your piece over at the Daily Caller. Um, and you're you're in this piece talking about 2020 Democrats trying to be the most insane person on Trump nominees, and that's a quote from uh, Lindsey Graham. And mm-hmm. I I think one of the most interesting parts about this has been like the, the the day of the announcement that the president made about the Supreme Court nominee, there were people out with signs and they actually had fill-in-the-blank signs. So he, the president could have pulled a fast one and nominated Barack Obama or Loretta Lynch to the <laughs> Supreme Court and they would have had to write that in there because they're just basically opposed because it's Trump.
6: Yeah. Um, well, I think this whole thing points exactly to that, uh, to that point is that they just oppose it because it's Trump. They have no clue. I mean, there are signs Pre-made signs with "Stop Hartman," "Stop Barrett," "Stop Kavanaugh." I mean, they had signs for each of the top four nominee nominee choices that uh, Trump was going to pick from, and so uh, it, it it is truly ridiculous. And the thing I think that's very interesting too is before Trump announced that it was Kavanaugh who was going to be the Supreme Court justice pick. Uh, the whole conversation was surrounded, about, uh, was surrounded on Roe v. Wade and abortion. And that was the case because they thought the momentum was going in the direction of Amy Coney Barrett, who is a strong Catholic and very much against, uh, against abortion. She's very pro-life. And so that was the direction of the conversation. And immediately, when Trump announced Kavanaugh, all of a sudden, the hush from the media, the hush from the left, over pro-choice, uh, pro pro-life pro began, and then we started focusing somehow on Russian collusion again and the Mueller probe again, and that Kavanaugh would be a friend on the Supreme Court for Trump in the case that, in the very small case, because we have no clue what's going on in the Mueller probe, that uh, something come before the Supreme Court that has to do with Russia collusion from 2016. And so really, it, it's, it's outrageous, and that's exactly what Lindsey Graham is talking about here, is that... They're gonna to have to go in twenty twenty. Uh the Democrats are going to have to go with someone who is going to be so outrageous on the Supreme Court that uh that, you know, there's really that that it's very confusing to people. And that that's what we see here now too. It's just confusing. Why are you up opposing these things? And um and it's just really it's it's really sad to see that.
3: It is. And I, I think one mm-hmm. of the points that you're making here is so the American people, like general, regular American people, I, I, I'm not talking about activists or people who are hard on the left. I know I'm, I'm hard on the right, according to, you know, the the assessments that they make about people who do radio and media, but people mm-hmm. in the middle, people who live and breathe and move in the middle and are really not political animals. They're more like just, you know, voters, people who are Americans and, and care about issues, but they're not all the time into the politics. They don't want an extreme left or what would be characterized as an extreme right person on the Supreme Court or, or any of our public areas. They really want people who they can kind of feel like are like themselves. So I do you feel like, Julie, it's a mistake um, that that the Democrats have really, they haven't just veered to the left a little bit. It's more like a conscious effort to rapidly oppose anything that the right presents, which places them past where the normal Democrat, like, line would be into kind of a socialist bent, which is now appearing in their politics in the form of candidates unseating entrenched Democrats and really changing the face of who they are.
6: Right. Well, I think that it's just uh, really a bad precedent to set to want to politicize the court. I mean, the court is not, they're not elected officials. The court, they are judges. They are people with heavy, the Supreme Court and. and particularly, is uh, is a body, a group of uh, nine people at the current time um, who, and that fluctuates and has fluctuated through history, but they are a body of nine people at the current time who are supposed to be set on interpreting the law. They are not an elected body. They are not someone who, you know, they are elected and confirmed by people who are representatives, but they are not directly elected by the people, and there's a reason for that. Uh, they are not supposed to be politicized. That's why they have life tenure. And that's why they are supposed to interpret the Constitution as is. And that's the main difference that we see on the Supreme Court when it comes to, quote, left-leaning judges and, quote, right-leaning judges. The left-leaning judges interpret the Constitution more as a body or uh, the Constitution more as a document of something that changes over time with culture and society. And the, quote, right-leaning judges interpret the Constitution as is, as was written, because there are natural rights that cannot be violated. And so we see that now when Trump appoints uh, people like Gorsuch and now people like Kavanaugh who are interpreting the Constitution as it, was suppo- as it was written and supposed to be interpreted from the day that it was written even up until today because there's that philosophical underpinning that we see that really reaches into society and you know, supports regular legal law.
3: I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And and I know, so you're, you're a reporter for The Daily Caller and you guys do a really good job over there of presenting the news in, in a more unbiased fashion. Obviously a right-leaning publication, but definitely willing to castigate anyone who comes down on the wrong side of the issues. And so mm-hmm. for me, it's super important to hear you describing that distinction between the two philosophies of choosing Supreme Court judges. The ones on the left tend to be more activists, the ones on the right tend to be more traditional, as in more in what has been done before, what has gone before, what did the founders actually mean, what did they write. Um, And so that's important because I'm seeing some characterizations of Judge Kavanaugh, and especially when Amy Coney Barrett was still a part of the equation before he made the announcement, as Trump seeks to appoint an activist judge, when in reality, it's completely the opposite. Would you say, or, or I mean, I think that's what I'm thinking.
6: Well, yeah, I think it's really funny because actually a lot of people on the left would would agree with uh, Kavanaugh on on many things, especially about Roe v. Wade. And so this is where where people don't understand. Uh, Kavanaugh said he is a big believer in stare decisis. This is the main difference between Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett. Kavanaugh said, I'm a big believer in stare decisis, which means the precedent that the court set should be abided by in the current time and through new cases. And Amy Coney Barrett said that she is more lenient on sorry devices. Well, considering that in 19, uh, what this 1973, uh, whenever uh, Roe v. Wade became law, yeah, you're right, um, 73. That is the that is the precedent that was set. And so uh, Kavanaugh even said he said, look we're going to uh, he he made he made previous comments while he was while he was previously addressed and uh, he said i believe in i believe in the precedent of the court and so we're going to abide by that understanding when um, when cases come up in the courts particularly in relation when he was talking about the supreme court and so this is it's it's funny because people will really go out of their way just a Rag on anything that Trump does, and they don't even look to the policy exactly of what he is saying or what he is doing. They know nothing of Kavanaugh. The only thing they know is that Trump appointed a justice, and we must protest that because some, for some reason we have to protest Trump, and it makes no sense.
3: It doesn't. So I, w- I want to just make one quick point about the star decisis, which, and I am not strictly against that concept that precedent should rule. I'm not against it per se. But there have mm-hmm. been many times that the Supreme Court of the United States has incorrectly judged cases. My favorite, Agreed. because I'm black, Absolutely is agree. when the, the Judge uh, Dred, Dred Scott, they mm-hmm. they declare he wasn't a person. Now, we all know that black people are people, too, and that the Supreme Court mm-hmm. was wrong on that one. They also came down on the wrong side of a number of different issues. So in my mind, you can respect stardustis without... Uh, kind of giving away the whole farm, you can say, yeah, precedent rules, except when something was incorrectly deemed constitutional or unconstitutional due to maybe it was what people believe was the order of the day or the, the you know, the, what was acceptable in the country at that point. That could never be acceptable now. But at that point in the history of this nation, it was. And so when Roe v. Wade was decided it was at that moment people felt, well, this is the only way we can give women the right to reproductive you know, auto- autonomy. But now that we've gone further and we have much more scientific knowledge about when look, basically anything that's cells are dividing and it's growing, that's alive, that human babies mm-hmm. inside of their mothers are not actually parts of their mothers. They're individual human beings. They're attached to their mothers, but they are separate people, conscious beings. They grow into full-size people if allowed to continue to grow. There's so much more that we know now the, the fetal pain that they feel during mm-hmm. abortions. So I, I understand the Supreme court could have ruled for Roe v. Wade at the time, but now with medical advances and different things that have occurred scientifically and the mood of the country, I feel that in some point in the future, they can absolutely declare it unconstitutional as a right and then remand it back to the States where States would have to decide whether or not a, uh, an abortion facility could do abortions up to a certain point, or if at all.
6: Certainly. Um, and I think that that goes back to the whole, uh, the way that Kavanaugh looks at the law. Like he said in his speech, uh, when, when Trump had announced that he uh, was going to be the Supreme Court pick, and also as, as Vice, Prince, Vice President Pence had emphasized afterward, uh, is that he interprets the Constitution as is. And so um, that's the difference, you know, between, between the left-wing and the right-wing judges. But also, you're right, when you, when you mentioned Dred Scott, when you mentioned Brown v. Board of Education, and mm-hmm. now we're talking about Roe v. Wade, there are certain things, cultural things that the Supreme Court has taken up and decided that were previously wrong, but they dealt with the culture at that time. But that culture at the time was also skewed, and so mm-hmm. that is how Kavanaugh, I think he's actually going to get a lot of things right on the court because he said he is willing to and believes deeply in interpreting the Constitution as is. And so that means that there are continual philosophical and legal decisions that he's going to make with that Understanding of the Constitution, and so, uh, and, and they, and they, the some things, some things are natural law. Many things don't change. Some things do change, but on the Supreme Court, he's going to decide in that, in that manner. And is this abiding by the Constitution or is it not? What does the Constitution say about this, or does it not? And that is the biggest reason why Trump uh, decided to pick him. And also, just another note: uh, Trump did a lot of personal uh personal research on kavanaugh he he called people personally to talk about this and many people have attested to this pence has attested to this a lot of many people have tested to this um the person who would be advisor to trump's godist pick has attested to this and so it's it's really interesting to see that trump had actually gone out of his way to do his research on uh on a uh, justice and uh i think that just points exactly to the fact that kavanaugh is a good pick for the Supreme Court and um, with the votes in the Senate, I think he's going to do, I think he'll, hopefully he'll pass. I think he might pass, especially with Murkowski and Collins in mm-hmm. the way, because they're the two main senators who really have to vote for him, who are kind of yeah. on the edge in the Republican seats, but it All should right. be good so,
7: and, uh, we'll-
3: Thank you, Julia, for coming on today and for your expert analysis. Julia Nista from The Daily Caller, and we'll be right back with more.
7: St. John 1 and 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember in the Word when Jesus was responding to Satan's antics? When Satan was trying to tempt Jesus with food, Jesus responded with himself. He responded with the Word. There are no new tricks in Satan's book. At the end of the day, his job is to create fear and doubt. And you know, steal, kill, and destroy. So if Jesus, who was fully God, responded to Satan with the word, why do we think that we can get along without the word? The Bible says, study to show thyself approved. Equip yourself with the word daily and watch your response to Satan's foolishness change. One of my coworkers, Pastor Joseph Parker, teaches that it's good to read at least 3 chapters a day. Sounds good to me. Today is a good day to start. With a heart for the urban family, I'm today's urban woman Tony Johnson. Connect with us at urbanfamilytalk.com.
8: Coming next week on The Dwelling Place. Pastor Al Pittman continues to walk us through the
3: Bible line by line and verse by verse to let God show us just how timeless His truth is. That's next week on The Dwelling Place.
1: We need you to call your senators today. Tell them to put an end to the liberals' filibuster, switch to a majority vote, and defund Planned Parenthood. Your call will make a difference. Call the Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121 or go to afaaction.net. Again, call 202-224-3121 and tell your Senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Hi, I'm Will Addison.
8: And I'm Miki Addison of Aaron the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. Family is so important to everything. I mean, think about it. Right after God created Adam, He made family by creating Eve as his wife.
0: We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference this summer. We have a full slate of experts to help encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family.
8: Our speakers include Ryan Baumberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Shuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Bert Harper and his wife, Jan, and more.
0: We'll even be there.
8: The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference will be Friday and Saturday, August 17th and 18th at Hope Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. Come help us fight back against the enemy's direct attack on marriage and family. That's the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference put on by Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com.
1: This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Uh,
5: so, for, so first of all, the piece acknowledges that that is probably not true, but it might be. And one of the reasons I wrote this is you need to take seriously some of these low probability, high impact scenarios. You know, before the election, sort of everyone heard that Hillary Clinton had about an 80% chance of winning. And we all just treated it like that meant 100% and didn't think about what would that 20% alternative really means. So that's part of what I'm doing with this with with aspects of this piece like this trip to Moscow, you know, what would it mean if it w- if it really went that deep? Now, there's a lot of ways in which this scandal could be really bad and not go that deep, but I think you need to consider that for another reason, which is that everyone always says, well, this has been Trump's view forever. All this stuff he's saying about the Western allies splitting us apart from the West and, and how, he's, how he's sort of saying, we, you know, we should let them go their own way. That's just what he's always thought. It's not really what he's always thought. It's what he's thought since 1987. He never thought that before then, or at least he never said it before then. And in 19. 19- Eighty-seven is when he he went to moscow and he's feted by the russians in, in tours moscow and then he comes back then he starts talking about running for president for the first time and then he starts talking for the first time about how our allies are a bunch of freeloaders and we should kick him to the curb yeah and we should say that he is i mean i just want to be clear here he is really consistent on that point right the the idea that this sort of zero-sum view that yeah. our allies are free-riding and we're paying for it he takes out full-page ads at a hundred thousand dollars he sounds identical to how he does now right the idea that like we're getting abused we're getting taken for granted. And we're paying for other people's defense.
6: Oh, my goodness.
3: So let me give you just a, a brief rundown of what I could find this morning. But by the way, welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the right here on Urban Family Talk and American Family Radio. Go to those websites. Check them out. We have a poll question up over there as well at urbanfamilytalk.com. OK, so Lindsey Graham, here's his quote. Putin is not your friend. He says that on TV, directing that comment to President Trump. And you know, I'm not always like I'm not a totally 100% against Lindsey Graham. He's a bit too moderate for me, but he sometimes can be very, very astute on uh, international issues. So you know, he's it's not like I'm totally against him. But come on, why does he constantly try to characterize the president as being too friendly with Russia? Jonathan Chait, who's you, you just heard him there um, talking about this piece that he wrote for New York Magazine, where he describes the president. He he goes back and he it's like a person who doesn't know the Bible and doesn't actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ, can go through the Bible and cherry pick different scriptures to justify anything, to justify slavery, abusing your wife, abusing children, uh, you know, anything you can think of, you can find a scripture, cut it out and use it to support something that is totally unbiblical and ungodly, which is why we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, in all knowledge going forward, checking the scriptures against scriptures and remembering what Jesus Christ came here to do, and that, that the Bible is his word of truth, the sword of truth. But I know you've been in this before, where someone will take a Bible verse and completely take it out of context and use it to justify some sin, and you're like, eh, they didn't want that thing. That, you, that doesn't mean what you think it means. That's, that's similar to what he's doing here. He went back and found the time that the president visited Russia, he then said everything after he visited Russia is attributable to that moment. When we all know that, sure, you can have a life-changing event. You can have a life-changing trip or interaction with a group of people that changes your perspective on things. I mean, I'm sitting here. I was, I was a liberal once. My first vote ever was for Bill Clinton, second term. I, you know, So this, this isn't a situation where I'm saying people can't change or they can't have life-changing moments. But what Jonathan Chait is doing is he's saying Donald Trump's life-changing moment was when he visited Russia. The reason it's life-changing is because, first of all, let's take the end first. The end is we know he's a Russian agent. So working back from there, what facts and things can we find that fit into that assumption? And that's how we're going to justify what we're saying here. Now, I think it's funny that every time you have Lindsey Graham tell President Trump, Putin's not your friend, Jonathan Chait, uh, New York Magazine, Trump is a Russian asset since 1987, Joe Scarborough, stop working for Russia. James Clapper, President Trump is a Russian spy. These are not inconsequential people. James Clapper used to be the head of DNI. Joe Scarborough, he has a, he's, a host on, uh, um, he's a host on MSNBC. He also was a sitting member of Congress. Um, he's a respected broadcaster. He's internationally known. Uh, You know, Jonathan Chait, again, New York magazine writer. He's someone who, if he wants to be on television, he only has to send an email and he's there. And, of course, Lindsey Graham. These are not inconsequential people. And they're talking about the President of the United States, who is under investigation. But now that we know who started the investigation and how it was brought to be, it's clearly a witch hunt. Now, people will say, it's not a witch hunt. It's not. But they're not people we should take seriously because when you find out that the individuals who are doing the investigating are all exchanging tens of thousands of emails and text messages about how they hate the person being investigated and they have to bring him down, come hook or come crook. That's an indicator that it's a witch hunt. And if you don't believe that, take Donald Trump's name out of the sentence and put your name there and see how that feels. You would not want people investigating you to be partial to Uh, partially against you. So you want them to be impartial. Let me rephrase that. People who are investigating other people need to be impartial. They need to have no personal animus towards the, the, uh, the target of the investigation. If they have personal animus, they are supposed to recuse themselves or remove themselves from the investigation because our Constitution guarantees you due process, which assumes that you are innocent, until there is a preponderance of evidence that proves you guilty when presented to a jury of your peers. That's that's 101, America 101 right there. And for people who don't believe that, I mean, that's not our fault that you don't understand the the system of government that you live under. You're blessed to be under it, but you don't get it. So you got all these really important people, and it's not like they just start saying this last week. They've been beating this drum nonstop since twenty sixteen. He's a Russian agent, he's doing this, he's doing that. So you would think if Donald Trump was a Russian agent, he'd be fine with Germany and other European nations giving 70 percent of their energy business to Russia. Wouldn't that satisfy his his uh, his aims? If we assume he's a Russian agent and that's the bedrock truth and we work our way backwards, every action he's taken since he's been in public life in mid-2015 when he declared his intention to run for the presidency should support the assertion that he, that, that has been made. If everything points to him being a Russian agent, why is he arguing with Angela Merkel in public and embarrassing her about giving 70 percent of her energy business to the Russians? Something here doesn't add up. So here's President Trump. He's schooling the NATO allies on the difference between trade. So in other words, I have 10 candles. You have 10 lighters. I'm going to sell you five of my candles. I'm going to you know, buy five of your lighters. That's trade. Energy is where you're buying natural resources from another nation. And that's something that once you get into contracts like that, that becomes an entrenched relationship because energy requirements, like you don't have to buy candles. If you like scented candles like I do, you buy them when the budget permits. You don't skip buying beef and, and you know, eggs and cheese and milk to buy scented candles. But you will skip buying expensive cuts of beef and expensive you know types of, of extras like sushi and and you know uh, seafood to keep your lights on to keep your gas running to keep your uh, your what electric going so you can have electricity in your home. Do you see the difference there? so the relationships that nation states get into for their energy needs are matters of national security and they go to the heart of allies. You would want to make those kinds of relationships with allies. Your country protects my country and has done so since the last world war. I want to offer you the opportunity to have our energy business before I go to someone who is technically my foe under the NATO arrangement that we all live with. That is what Donald Trump expected to happen. But instead, because Angela Merkel has a whole lot of negative feelings towards Donald Trump, she took that business to her actual foe her foe on paper, her foe on r- in real life, her actual legitimate enemy which is Russia. She took them the to business and gave it to him. And Donald Trump was hearing none of it. It's number 4.
1: But how can you be together when a country is getting its energy from the person you want protection against or from the group that you want protection? Because we
2: understand that uh, when we stand together, also when uh, dealing with Russia, we are stronger. I think what we have seen is that... No, you're
1: just making Russia richer. Well you're not dealing with Russia, you're making Russia richer.
2: Well, so I think that even during the Cold War uh, NATO allies were trading with uh, Russia, then there have been uh, disagreements about what kind of uh, trade arrangements we should, uh, we sure. should go I into. think
1: trade is wonderful. I think energy is a whole different story i think energy is a much different story than normal trade and you have a country like poland that won't accept the gas you take a look at some of the countries they won't accept it because they don't want to be captive to russia but germany as far as i'm concerned is captive to russia because it's getting so much of its energy from russia so we're supposed to protect germany but they're getting their energy from russia explain that and it can't be explained you know
3: Did you hear what he said? So for someone who is constantly characterized as being uh, unprepared, someone who doesn't prepare enough, he eats too much McDonald's or whatever. This guy really knows how to support his assertions. He's sitting there across the table from him and the leader of the NATO alliance. He's like, yeah, but we're stronger when we're together and we're not always going to agree on trade issues. And Donald Trump was like, excuse me. This isn't a trade issue. This isn't you buying, you know, a thousand toilets from Russia. This is a deal where they give 70 percent of their energy business to the state most likely to run over them with tanks and carpet bomb them. If given the opportunity, the minute the last asset of United States military hardware got on a, a freighter and was shipped out of the European continent, Russia would move every single submarine within the vicinity to all of the bordering nations and they would take it over. There's not a doubt in my mind. You could ask war college experts. You could go to the Pentagon. You could ask for a briefing on one of the local meetings that occurs regionally across this country on a quarterly basis between national security experts and those who are in these various industries that have to do with our defense. And every one of them would tell you that without a United States presence in Europe, Europe would be little Russia within weeks. The only reason that Russia doesn't move on those nations is because of us. And so, hey, dance with the one who brought you. Who buttered that bread? America. Who saved your bacon the last time you were in trouble? America. So don't sit there and act like you didn't understand what you were doing, Angela Merkel, when you went and made that huge, big, consequential national security impacting deal on who you were going to buy your natural gas from, especially when Americans are putting down natural gas like nobody's business. That is our largest, fastest growing sector in the energy market. We had to make up the difference because Barack Obama wouldn't let us get oil off of federal lands. He was shutting things down faster than Americans could pick it up. So what did we do? The private sector responded. They not, they didn't just respond. They sprung into action, putting natural gas on the forefront, employing Americans, bringing towns back from the brink of literally extinction. And now we are a major player in the natural gas energy market internationally and we have the resources. We have the natural gas. We have the ability to get it to you all you have to do is say let's do some business and so in the face of that I mean it's not like we're like can can you can you do some natural gas business with us just give us 10 years to get our stuff together you know that's not even anything Americans would let come out of their mouths they are over there right now trying to make these deals they have been for the past few years and Germany knew it but they did this because they wanted to put their finger in Trump's eye and he's like you can't reach my eye we're too big We're too tall for you to reach our eye. You can't put your finger in our eye, but I can put you on blast in front of national media, international media for doing this deal. When we're the ones who have our boots on the ground, our troops getting blown up in nightclubs, our troops raising their kids overseas, having their families overseas like our family did when we were over there. My dad was supporting and defending the Constitution of the United States stationed in Germany. My family lived there for 15 years. We spent money on the German economy. We lived there. We loved it there. And the German people, I don't, I don't blame them at all, except, you know, they keep electing Angela Merkel. But this is about understanding that it, it was people like my father on active duty serving in the military overseas in Germany and France and England that keep Russia over there on their continent. Yeah, they played around with Crimea a little bit, but that's about as far as they could get. And they only did that because Barack Obama was president under George Bush. They wouldn't have danced that dance. They wouldn't have even put toeholds over there because they knew what would happen with the cowboy, as they like to call him. We are the defining and definitive force in Europe for maintaining peace and stability. And that is what Donald Trump was pointing out at that breakfast and. We've not had a president who's willing to put that information out there the way that he did. We've not had that. And that's why you see the people in the media spinning like tops and losing their minds. They can't stand it. It's too much alpha male going on. They want some limp-wristed, you know, lily-livered foreign policy like they had last go-round. Time for that's up. And it's time for NATO to step to the table and meet us where we are and treat us with respect for what we provide for them, which is safety and security. That's hour one. We'll be back with hour two right after these important messages. Stay there.